Welcome to Politicology. This is Ron Steslow. I've been thinking a lot about the potent force of religious fervor in politics, and specifically about charismatic Christianity's relationship with the idea of America. For example, how does the belief system of a group of charismatic faith leaders who view Donald Trump as a divine champion embolden a crusade that blurs the lines between spiritual leadership and political warfare? See, this isn't just a question of faith. It's a question of power. And the answers could determine who wins what Joe Biden has framed as the battle for the soul of America. Perhaps the most dangerous thing about Donald Trump is that he and his advisors are furiously set on obliterating the rules-based order. Their operating principle is power. And one clear and present threat of his return to the most powerful office in the world is that he simply might not leave. But any clear-eyed analysis of the threat of the second coming of Trump must deal with the fact that within his movement, there is a durable and fervent faction of religious fanatics who understood the attempt to help him hold on to power on January 6th to be a form of holy war. I grew up as a pastor's kid in a Pentecostal Christian church. And while I've long since abandoned that belief system and worked through my own religious trauma— The language and symbolism and structure of the charismatic worldview is all too familiar to me. So while most people saw the Trump rally-turned-riot at the Capitol as a right-wing political event, I was looking at the flags that read, Jesus is king, and Jesus is my savior, Trump is my president. There was even a group carrying a sign that read, Jesus 2020, and Jesus or hellfire. So consider this. Many political reporters may not dive deep into the rich tapestry of American Christianity with its various doctrinal differences. Yet, understanding these beliefs is key to grasping how they influence the quest for political power. They all sort of blend together in this coverage and receive maybe only superficial scrutiny, in part because of Christianity's privileged role in American mythology and our strong constitutional protections for religious freedom. Yet lurking in the shadows of this blind spot is a distorted version of faith. It's a belief system that sees itself in a cosmic battle against unseen forces with political domination as the prize. Democracy be damned. So this is part one of a two-part series to help tell this story more fully and with the care and precision I think it demands. My guest is Dr. Matthew Taylor who created an excellent nine-hour podcast series on the topic, which will ultimately become a book. Matthew is a senior scholar and the Protestant scholar at the Institute for Islamic Christian Jewish Studies, where he specializes in Muslim-Christian dialogue, evangelical and Pentecostal movements, religious politics in the U.S., and American Islam. Matt holds a Ph.D. in Religious Studies and Muslim-Christian Relations from Georgetown University and an M.A. in Theology from Fuller Theological Seminary. In part one, we discuss his background, why January 6th made him study charismatic Christianity, why he introduced the term charismatic revival fury. This refers to the intense, passionate resurgence in charismatic Christian groups who are zealously seeking to reshape politics. We talk about how Trump's push to steal the 2020 election intersected with charismatic Christianity. We talk about how independent charismatic leaders became early Trump supporters why Christian supremacy is a better descriptor than Christian nationalism, why the term white Christian nationalism obscures the multiracial makeup of the charismatic movement. 
And we talk about an idea called the New Apostolic Reformation, which led to zealous engagement in politics. And coming up in part two, we will discuss the theological basis for Trump, a non-Christian, being chosen by God to be president, the belief that political leaders are appointed by God, something called strategic spiritual warfare at the Capitol on January 6th, the discourse of violence in charismatic Christianity leading to January 6th, the lack of understanding of charismatic Christians in American media, which I alluded to. We talk about being precise about the threats to pluralism presented by part of charismatic Christianity. And finally, we talk about what he's seeing in this subculture as we head toward the 2024 election and what you can do to bring some health to these conversations. And now here's part one of my conversation with Dr. Matthew Taylor. Matthew, welcome to Politicology. It's a pleasure to have you here. We should tell people that we owe this, uh, we owe this introduction, I think, to John Ward, uh, who, who mentioned your work uh, when I interviewed him a while back about his book. And um, so shout out to John. Thank you for the introduction. I have completed this masterpiece that you have written and produced. Um, and there's a link in the show notes for everybody. I, I, I can't recommend strongly that you go listen to this. Um, before we dive in, uh, I'm curious about your personal history. Um, you were raised as an evangelical. Um, I have mentioned a couple of times uh, on the show that I grew up in a denomination called Foursquare which is some sort of difficult to explain because people think it's the app or they think it's the, 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 the game you play with a ball when you're in junior high, depending on how old you are. So, uh, uh, and I'm like, no, no, it's a, it's a sort of uh, a fundamentalist branch of uh, evangelical Christianity. Can you talk about your sort of upbringing, your, your, your religious heritage, as it were? Yeah, so I was raised evangelical in Southern California. Um, my family... We we bounced around uh, through a lot of different churches. We went to a four-square church for a while. I think I was at late elementary school at that point. Went to a vineyard church for a while, which is another charismatic denomination. So the four-square church is um, a Pentecostal denomination. goes back to the early 20th century. Um, and then landed in an evangelical free church, which is kind of middle-of-the-road evangelical um, wound up getting involved with an organization called InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, which is a college uh, ministry, and worked for InterVarsity for about seven years. And while I was doing that, I went to Fuller Theological Seminary and did a master's degree there. And so I was doing college ministry, did a seminary degree, and then realized I'm not evangelical anymore. <laughs> and so, um, and then I, I also discovered that I was really fascinated with Islam. Uh, most of the people who were studying anything about Islam at Fuller Seminary wanted to become missionaries. And I realized I didn't want to convert Muslims, but I really liked talking to them. Mm. And I, I learned a lot in conversation with them. And so decided I wanted to get a PhD in uh, religious studies and Muslim Christian relations and wound up going to Georgetown University, moving across the country and have been on the East Coast, Mid-Atlantic ever since. So now I'm in Baltimore. And now you're in Baltimore. So what do you do on a daily basis? What is your what is your energy consumed by right now? I am a scholar at the Institute for Islamic, Christian, and Jewish Studies, which is um, an interreligious and interfaith organization. We're, we're an independent nonprofit, not associated with any university, any denomination, any one faith. Um, and we really do peace building combating uh, anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, challenging Christian nationalism, and trying to advocate for 
pluralism in America, democracy in America, and having a multi-religious, multi-racial, pluralistic democracy. That's kind of the vision that we have. And so as a scholar, I have my own research agenda, but then we also do educational programs, some of them local, but many of them online um, that are open to everyone and everything we offer is free to the public. So we have our own fundraising wing that figures out the finances, but we try to do everything that we can to make things available and free to the public. A lot of it's up on YouTube or on our website and we, um, but we do teaching on how do, what, what's the history of Jewish Christian relations and how does that feed into the present? What's the history of Muslim Christian relations or Muslim Jewish relations? And how do we think about all of the history that uh, we inhabit and how do we bring that into the present and find ways to have good conversations despite that history? If ever there were a time for that exact work. Yeah. Man. We're not going out of business anytime yeah, soon. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe we can come back to that toward the end here because... Um, I think a lot of listeners will be interested in maybe getting engaged in that work, um, learning more about it. So um, what led you to studying evangelical and Pentecostal movements in the first place? Part of it is that it was my background. And, um, but, and, and when I, my, my first book that is more on the Muslim Christian relations side is actually looking at a a Muslim movement um, called Salafism or the Salafis. Um, and uh, just as I was studying um, Islam, everything I read and saw among the Salafis just resonated for me in a particular way. And I realized it was because of my evangelical background. And so my first book is actually kind of looking at Salafism in America and the way that it has actually converged in different ways with evangelicalism, adopted some of the same frameworks and styles as evangelicalism. Um, but then I sent off the manuscript of that book on the morning of January 6, 2021 to the publisher. And I thought I would actually have a, a, a relaxing day after wow. that. And I knew we, I mean, obviously was paying attention to the political context, knew that it was going to be a kind of tense day politically. Um, but then that afternoon was um, watching events unfold on my television, trying to keep my preschool age children from watching the same events yeah. and being uh, traumatized by it. But um, just realizing this is uh, a, a new era yeah. in thinking about American evangelicalism, because yeah. um, I could see in just the crowds and the symbolism of that day how much evangelicalism was built into it. Yeah. Um, and so because I was in a little bit of a lull research-wise, I just started digging into who are, who are the leaders behind this? What was this? What was driving this? And it became a whole new yeah. research stream for me. Yeah. Wow. Well, a lot of this, um, what we're going to talk about today, centers around January 6th. Um, in fact, John Ward offers some beautiful praise um, for the series. Uh, and he says, Taylor's podcast is in one sense the untold story of January 6th, uh, the assault at the U.S. Capitol. But it's so much more than that as well. I can't think of a work of research and storytelling over the past year that is as important as this one. Um, and I, I couldn't agree more, especially when I saw the Christian flag being waved by the rioters at the Capitol, I, I, I immediately knew what this was. Um, and that's not to say that everyone was thinking exactly the same thing, but certainly the ideas that animated many of those rioters I was familiar with. And, um, and then I came to find out most people have no idea that there's even a Christian flag in the first place. Right. Which I pledged allegiance to when I was when I was a child. I, I did the same. <laughs> so um, that's a particular uh, sort of piece of trivia and trauma um, that that sometimes is difficult to explain. So um, 
let's talk about the podcast. When did you decide that you needed to write this 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 opus uh, and um, and needed to make this podcast and outline what you were seeing? So I knew I would be writing a book on the topic, um, but I also had this awareness that um, a not everyone reads books, and uh, I love podcasts. I I I'm an avid consumer of podcasts, and um, I saw. Brad Onishi, who is the producer of Charismatic Revival Fury, he um, has a podcast called Straight White American Jesus, and they had a they had put out a call for proposals for um, scholars to offer suggestions on a series. And so I submitted a proposal, like, oh, it'd be fun to to kind of think about this as a podcast. And um, Brad wrote back to me and said, "I've given the, the 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 research money to somebody else, but I'd still like to work with you on this." <laughs> and um, so um, we we just wound up kind of cobbling it all together um, and. Um, I think part of it was I wanted to take a first pass at how to think and talk about this stuff before I wrote the book um, and to get some of the ideas and the research out there to start some conversations and just recognizing as well the political context that we're in um, and wanting to make sure well before the 2024 election um, that we there was a general cognizance of what were the Christian forces yeah. that drove uh, yeah. January 6th. Yeah. Okay. Um and last sort of setup question, and then we'll start to get into some of the meat here. Why did you decide to use the term charismatic revival fury? Um, so charismatic um, here is we're using it is not um, not the the way that most people think of the term charismatic. Most right. people think of that as a magnetic personality, right? right? Um, but we're, we're talking about it in an older sense of the word charismatic and in, in some ways the original sense of the term charismatic, which actually goes back to the New Testament. And... So the, the term in Greek is uh, charisma, charismata is the plural. Um, and the idea is that it's a, it's a gift from God, a, a grace from God. It's a term that was used by the early Christian church um, in reference to what's often talked about as the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which are these manifestations of God's character, but also God's power in the world. Um, so the charismata or the, the, the spiritual gifts can be everything from a gift of administration or teaching, something very kind of mundane to what we would talk about more in charismatic terms today, healing, mm -hmm. prophecy, um, speaking in tongues. Speaking in tongues, yeah, which I did. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there's a lot of different forms of speaking in tongues too. Yeah. People don't, don't always realize that speaking in tongues is not a, a, a simple phenomenon. Right. There, there are a lot, and it, it's also not a uniquely Christian phenomenon. Right. They're, they're, the, the technical term is glossolalia, mm -hmm. and it's actually practiced by a number of different religious traditions and communities. Um, so th that's charismatic. Um, the, the, the movement that we're looking at in um, the podcast is called the New Apostolic Reformation, and they are absolutely obsessed with this idea of revival, um, which I mean, a lot of a lot of Christians care about revival, yeah. um, but the, their particular orientation to it is less the sense of masses of people converting and more this utter spiritual renewal, the right. spiritual energy that breaks out unpredictably at the guidance of the Holy Spirit that will transform society. And that was actually a lot of what was going into January 6th. There were a lot of people who showed up on January 6th because they thought God was going to miraculously intervene. Yeah. And then a revival would break out after that yeah. because everyone would see God's hand in this, that God was going to miraculously <clears throat> reinstall Donald Trump right. as president, and then we'd have a revival. And then the Fury piece is, um, the, and if you listen to the series, you can absolutely hear it, the, the, the sense of anger and indignation yeah. that goes along with it. It's, it's, it's paradoxical in some ways, right? That 
Charis- the the revival idea is hopeful. Yes. And then the fury is the anger, despair, the the despair, right? And that those things are are often paired yeah. in especially charismatic spirituality, but also in general evangelical spirituality. The sense of wanting to lay claim to America, lay claim to the nation, lay claim to a certain spiritual heritage, and then a frustration. Yeah. At how far we've fallen from. Yeah. That. Yeah. And both of those combined create a sense of it, the stakes could not possibly be higher because they are not simply, you know, of this world. They are for eternity. Absolutely. And when you have eternal stakes on the line in your sort of physical protest, this is where this is quite literally holy war. <laughs> it's it, Yeah. It's a cosmic scale right. of combat and culture war. Right. And yeah, the stakes are eternal and the, um, the ambition. Yeah is driven by that both yeah. the the charis- sense of charismatic power yeah. but then also this fury yeah of we need to take it back we need we need to have our nation back can you uh, unpack just a little bit more about what is meant by the idea of revival because that's a that's a word that is you know very familiar to me from the 90s uh certainly there are all kinds of festivals and events aimed at revival uh, especially for the youth at that point i'm remembering acquire the fire remembering um, sort of all kinds of Christian culture that were oriented around the idea of revival. Can you give maybe um, people who aren't familiar with this particular subculture a sense of what that means? Yeah. The, so, I mean, if you go back in evangelical history, it, it has in many ways been shaped, American evangelical history at least, has been shaped by a series of revivals. So um, in the colonial era, in the 18th century, you had what we today call the First Great Awakening. This is Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, And um, it, it was a kind of moment of unifying piety for the American colonies where um, you had these kind of outbreaks of, it was often emotional, but it was also very theological. The sense of renewing the church, invigorating individuals' piety, collectively drawing people together in worship. And then that segued after the revolution into what we call the Second Great Awakening, which was really the, historically was the spread of the Methodists and the Baptists into the frontiers of the, the, the early country. Um, but um, the, Jill Lepore, who's a great historian, uh, makes the observation that in the beginning of the 19th century, only about 10% of the U.S. population were members of a church. At the early, the, the, the era of the revolution was not an era of, of great piety by the era of the revolutionary war. So in, and in between, or excuse me, the, the civil war and in, in between there, right between the revolutionary war and the civil war, you have the second great awakening by the time of the civil war, about 80% of the U S population were members of churches. So that is the second great awakening. It's this movement. This is where you start to see uh, tent revivals yep. that people might recognize from artwork. Um, these uh, preachers, we would today might call them charismatic, but at the time that wasn't really the term in use. But these fiery, fire and brimstone right. preachers calling people to conversion, but then also calling people who are already Christians into a deeper sense of commitment. And, and often these are accompanied by very emotional experiences. Yeah. And, and it became a practice in American evangelicalism of, of doing revivalism. There's different forms of it in different denominations, but um, the, the world that we're looking at in the podcast is this, this world that is obsessed with this idea of revival, mm-hmm. that pines after it, that longs for it, that the minute that they sense there could be a revival, they're magnetically drawn to yeah. it. Um, you mentioned the 1990s. Um, one of the famous revivals, I'm not sure if you experienced it in any way in your 
community, but one of the famous revivals of the 1990s was called the Toronto Blessing. I heard about it. Okay. It was not part of my um, my experience. So the Toronto Blessing breaks out in 1994 in mm-hmm. Toronto at a at a vineyard church, and um, the the manifestation of this particular revival. Every at least for people who believe in revivals and love revivals, they would say every one of them is slightly different. And the the Toronto Blessing was a, a, a laughing revival where people would be um, overtaken by what they talked about as holy laughter and and just fits of laughter, spontaneous laughter. I mean, I guess spontaneous in the context of thousands of other people who are also laughing, but that would go on for 15, 20 minutes, sometimes hours on end. And they, they experienced this as a, as a kind of form of rapture of ecstatic and cathartic release. Sometimes in the Toronto Blessing, people would be barking like dogs or roaring like lions because they felt moved by the spirit to do so. You also had the phenomenon of people being slain in the spirit as in like, falling on the ground, almost, almost in a, in a faint, um, just so overwhelmed by the presence of God. So, and, and that was just one of these revivals. It was a very formative one for this world, but, um, you you have these kind of episodic occurrences. It really happens every 10 to 20 years in some ways that you have one of these kind of outbreaks uh, in the charismatic Pentecostal world of one of these revivals. So in the series, you make it really clear, um, that this is about a revival, a mass conversion, um, that if God was going to intervene on Donald Trump's behalf and hand him the presidency in January 2021, uh, that it would spark a major revival. Can you um, explain what underpins that? What does it sit on top of? How do we back. connect it to Donald Trump? Let me back it up just a little bit. Um, in the Starting around the 1950s, really emerging heavily in the 1970s, you have the, this new sphere of Christianity that um, scholars like myself would talk about as the independent charismatic sphere. So Foursquare and other Pentecostal churches are denominational, right? They, they form in the early 20th century, and then they adopt this bureaucratic governance style called denominations. And that, but that energy of Pentecostalism doesn't remain contained within the Pentecostal denominations. In the middle of the 20th century, it spreads into Catholicism and into mainline Protestantism. So Amy Coney Barrett, one of the Supreme Court justices, was raised in a charismatic Catholic community. So spiritually Pentecostal, theologically Catholic. Um, and then in the 1970s, you have really this, this burgeoning movement that comes out, comes out of the Jesus people movement or the Jesus revival um, in the early 1970s, a hippie revival. And um, this is what we today talk about as the independent charismatic um, sector. And um, independent is just a, a, a synonym here for non-denominational. So these are organizationally diffuse churches, mostly non-denominational, charismatic and Pentecostal in their spirituality but not attached to the governance structures of a denomination. And that world was very interested in um, revival. And, and they were, there was an idea in that world, because it's so the governance is so loose, there was an idea that was born in the 1950s through a movement called the Latter Rain Movement that, was, that there are going to be modern apostles and prophets. That right, if you think back to the early church, the original disciples of Jesus are the apostles, and then the the both in the Hebrew Bible, the what Christians call the Old Testament, and in the New Testament, there's talk about prophets, these kind of figures who can hear directly from God and speak the words of God into the community. And the the sense in this independent charismatic world is that's what we need again. We need apostles and prophets to come back and lead the church into the end of history, 
and lead the church into this great global revival. And so starting in the 1980s, you started to have a number of people popping up saying, we are those prophets. And um, a group of them was clustered in Kansas City, uh, conveniently called the Kansas City Prophets. And one of them, um, a guy named Bob Jones, not to be confused with Bob Jones University, different Bob Jones, um, but he, he prophesied what was called a billion soul harvest. And this, and this is sometimes also talked about as the third great awakening, right? You have the first and second great awakenings, the third great awakening. And since the 1980s, you've had this sense that we're on the verge in these, in these independent charismatic and some Pentecostal circles, we're on the verge of this global revival. And for many of these folks, and this tells you a little bit about how American centric they are, they believe it will start in America. The prophecies say it will start in America and then spread from there to the rest of the world. And so in the buildup to January 6th, there was a lot of conversation about this, this discourse of the third great awakening could break out because they thought that it would, it, things looked so dire for Donald Trump. And yet they believed there were all these prophecies in this world that Donald Trump was supposed to win in 2020. And so they believed that God would intervene miraculously and it would be so evident to everyone that people would just be drawn and, and convert en masse to charismatic Christianity because it would be such a dramatic demonstration of God's power to put Trump back in office. And why Trump? <laughs> so that, what, what is it about this vision of the future of this, of this third great awakening of this revival that attaches itself to the man of Donald Trump and say, not some other political leader. Um, yeah. And that, how do we get there? That's the complicated story that I'm trying to tell in the series in many ways is that um, starting the Trump 2016 campaign was very unusual in right-wing and Republican circles. Um, and one of the things that happened early on, so um, Donald Trump had um, one of his core spiritual advisors, is a woman named Paula White, Paula yeah. White Kane, um, is, uh, she sometimes goes by. And, um, but, so she's Trump's personal pastor in many ways. She's an independent charismatic leader. She's a televangelist. And she becomes his top religious advisor in the 20, starting in 2015 when he declares his presidency. I think people will remember, listeners to this podcast will remember that the very first ad that the Lincoln Project released was called MAGA Church, and it featured Paula White very heavily at the podium saying, make your checks out to uh, Paula White Ministries. And um, uh, and there's a lot of imagery with her associated with Donald Trump. So if you, if you remember the very early sort of days of the campaign 2020, that's what we were focused on. So that's, that's Paula White. That's who we're talking about. Paula yeah. White Kane. Yeah. Smaller kind of blonde woman, yep. um, comes out of Mississippi. Um, and, um, she, so, so she is Trump's top religious advisor and Trump says like a good Republican candidate, I want to talk to the evangelical leaders. Yep. Paula White Kane doesn't know the mainstream evangelical <laughs> leaders. She's traveling in this world of apostles and prophets and televangelists and messianic rabbis. And that's who she brings in to meet with Donald Trump starting in the fall of 2015. So it's, she brings in the independent charismatic leaders that she knows, yeah. some of them Pentecostal, mostly non-denominational charismatic leaders that are her friends, her colleagues from her televangelism world. She brings them in and they, these are the first religious leaders to start meeting with Donald Trump, the first ones to start endorsing him. And mainstream evangelicalism, elite evangelicalism, kind of what we think of as like institutional or establishment evangelicalism, right. Right. that is largely not charismatic, right. doesn't want anything to do with Trump early on in the campaign. Right. But the grassroots love Donald Trump. And starting around July of 2015, he's already winning 
the the Republican Christian, the the, the yeah. evangelical Christian yeah. caucus, right? Right, and 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 but it's, it's small to start off. It's like twenty percent, right? There's right. like sixteen people in the race, right? But like twenty percent, the, the the plurality is going to Trump, and so these independent charismatic leaders are the first ones to latch hold of him, and he he, I mean, Trump in many ways speaks to the televangelism yes. audience, right? He's got that. In fact, he he was actually shaped by um, televangelism. In his in his own personal, yeah. I don't know if I want to call it spirituality, but his own orientation to sure. religion. Um, so he he and, and Paul White can tell stories about him watching these different preachers, Billy Graham, mm. um, Oral Roberts, and and um, being fascinated with them. And in fact, he was mentored in some ways, spiritually mentored by a pastor named Norman Vincent Peale in oh, New York, yes, who was the, we know. the power of positive yeah. thinking. And in, in some ways, that is a an early form right. of televangelism and of what we would call the prosperity gospel. Right. And Trump is is mentored and grows up listening to this kind of preaching and watches it on TV, intentionally watches yeah. it on TV. Yeah. And so he has that flair. Right? Yeah. He's got the weird hair and yeah. the constant positivity, but the then Joel the fire Osteen and brimstone. Kind of, yeah. yeah. And right. and and the 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 determined like and and um very uh uh overt. Yeah. Very very uh declaratory. Yeah. Right. Um and so the, these folks really gravitated towards him. And then later on in the campaign. As you had um, Trump consolidate the, the, through the primaries and become the nominee, all those respectable evangelical leaders who wouldn't have any, who didn't want to touch him with a ten foot pole early on, suddenly have to go hat in hand to Paula White and say, "We need access, right?" And so she becomes the gatekeeper. And part of what I'm trying to tell, both in the series but also even more in my book, is how that shift. Trump moving from the margins, and but Paula White also moving from the margins into the center of American politics and bringing with her all these independent charismatic leaders. It was a tectonic shift in the leadership of the religious right. Because suddenly these independent charismatic folks who would not, who would have been laughed out of the room 15 years earlier are at the heart of the Trump administration. So I just want to underscore that what you're describing is exactly parallel to the way we think about Donald Trump in the political yes. domain. He is the epitome of an anti-establishment candidate, was at the time, right? He would have been anathema, and so would so many of his followers and people around him. His campaign staff were C-list at best. They would not have set foot in yeah. the, the uh, respectable institutions that had, um, that had governed the Republican Party up until that point. And what you're describing is exactly the same thing on the religious side, on the spiritual side. Yeah. I find that fascinating. Yeah. Um, George W. Bush's, one of his chiefs of staff, uh, Andy Card, made a comment right after the, the 2016 election. Yep. He said, the um, U.S. politics used to have a lot of carpet and a little bit of fringe. Yeah. But nowadays it feels like there's more fringe than carpet. That's right. And I would actually say in the Trump administration, the fringe became the carpet. <sighs> And that happened on the, in the political sense, but it happened in the religious sense as well. Yeah. Suddenly you had these figures from the margins of evangelicalism who are now at the heart of the conversation and who control access to power. Yeah. And so the James Dobsons of the world, who are these figures of, or the Jerry Falwell Juniors of the world, who are the figures of establishment yes. evangelicalism, are suddenly hat in hand coming to Paula White and saying, hey, can we yeah. talk to the president? Yes. So James Dobson was like the North Star for my parents and their community and his work sort of guided a lot of the evangelical culture that I grew up in. He was not in the, in the inner circle in, in, in this time. 
Yes. Eventually he came into the inner circle, yeah. but it was Paula White was the gatekeeper. And yeah. I've talked to people who were in that um, environment and she was a strong gatekeeper. Mm. If somebody spoke against Trump, she blackballed him. Add another zero to that check. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> sorry, sorry. So, so that's that's yeah. that's that's kind of the backstory, and that's that's yeah. the context in which the the movement that I'm looking at in this series, the New Apostolic Reformation, comes into this central right. role of power. Right. They were many of them were in that early group, those early meetings with Trump, and became part. Got in at the ground floor yeah. of the Trump campaign. So. I want to spend a minute here talking about the role of politics within these communities. So we've now described sort of the uh, the establishment and the fringe, right, of of the religious part of this phenomenon. Um, and we're going to talk a lot about religious belief and practice today. Um, but these charismatic groups are highly engaged in politics and see politics as a way to achieve their goals. Um, and I think... First of all, we should understand like the role of politics within these communities traditionally. Um, and I think most people will have some idea of Christian churches, uh, like mine did, like my dad's did, of praying for our leaders, right? And uh, we call this intercessory prayer. Uh, and it's a common feature of lots of Christian traditions. Um, but the prayer was almost always for wisdom for our leaders. It was a, quite a generic uh, we pray for them to have the wisdom to make the best decisions possible, right? How do you differentiate that from the way these people think about politics within the community? Um, up until the 1990s, probably, it would be very much similar to that. So you you have, um, in the late 1970s, early 1980s, the what we talk about is the rise of the religious right. Right. right? Jerry Falwell Sr., Moral Majority, um, Ralph Reed, right? The, yep. the the all these kind of organizations, Pat Robertson, the the organizational heft of the religious right is built in the late seventies, early eighties. They aren't really engaging these independent charismatic communities very much right. in that stage. And Pentecostals are somewhat in the mix because they largely identify with more mainstream evangelicalism. And um, but it's mobilizing churches. It's often um, spreading ideas about voter guides into these churches. But then um, in the 1990s, and then continuing very much to the present, um, that independent charismatic sector, which is small but growing in the 90s, becomes very, very influential and very, very focused on politics. And they, the new theologies are emerging. And this is another piece that I think is largely misunderstood is um, oftentimes people want to think that church politics is, diff is separate from church theology. That, that somehow this is something that happens on the side that is detached from the theology. But I actually think theology is at the heart of this stuff. We talk about Christian nationalism. People often want to think of Christian nationalism simply as a, um, a political identity that people are, are clothing in Christianity. And I, at least with the communities that I study, the, 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 the people that I focus on, I fundamentally disagree with that. I think the, the theology drives the politics. Every bit as much as the politics drives the theology. Yes. Yes. I think that's right. So you bring up this term Christian nationalism. This is exactly where I wanted to uh, go next because it's a term we've heard a lot over the last few years, um, particularly white Christian nationalism. Now, I have had uh, sort of an allergic reaction to that phrase because it doesn't, to me, it's confused. Um, and I think it confuses white supremacy with Christian nationalism. And I those are two very, very different things. Uh, and so 
maybe we should start, maybe we should start there. I just want to tease those apart here because the idea of Christian nationalism, as many of our listeners will be familiar with it, is in this, in this term, in this, in this frame of white Christian nationalism that I think is part of a political narrative that isn't necessarily um, wrong, but as a, as a phrase, it isn't, I don't think, as useful for understanding the theology that is driving the movement that we're dis- discussing today. So can we start, if you agree with that, can you um, maybe, and feel free to offer any important distinctions or caveats, but if you could tease those apart for us first, and then we'll talk about the difference between Christian nationalism and Christian supremacy, which is your preferred term. Yeah. So, I, and I, I use the terminology of Christian nationalism, but I, I think to describe the movement that I'm looking at, I think Christian supremacy is more useful. And I can talk about that. But so Christian nationalism at, at a fundamental level is kind of, there are two tracks to understanding what, what they're talking about. One is about the foundations of the United States. It's kind of a historical, philosophical question about was the United States founded as a Christian nation? And so a lot of the surveys on Christian nationalism ask questions like, was the U.S. founded as a Christian nation? Should the U.S. be a Christian nation? The other track is about policy and privilege. And it says Christians should be privileged citizens of the United States. Or Christianity so is often how they would phrase it more, less that Christians are premier citizens and more Christianity should be privileged in the public square. The Bible should be read and taught in public schools. Christian prayer should be offered in public schools. Christian morality should structure our understanding of things like abortion or gay rights, right? That is the policy side of it, which you can, often they they go together, often they get combined by folks. And so people say, well, Christianity should be privileged because we're a Christian nation, but they actually can be detached. And, and so some people only would say, well, yeah, we were founded as a Christian nation, but we're something different now. Others would say, we weren't founded as a Christian nation, but we need to become one, right? And so I think we need to, to, to tease those up. Now, when you add in the white piece, um, you're adding in a racial category on top of this, right? And the reality is, for a lot of people who are Christian nationalists, particularly white people who are Christian nationalists, white supremacy, in, 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 in the soft sense, not of like, KKK robes, but but in in the sense of white is normal, is 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 very much a part of those communities often, these these Christian nationalist communities, right? So they're they're already blending their political tribal identity with their religious identity. And so adding race into that is not that difficult for them. Sure. Right. Because they're just saying I'm normal, right? Right. But whoever I am is normal. Right. But what I'm trying to get at is that it isn't a it isn't a prescriptive piece of a of an ideology or of the theology that only that this is only for white people. As a matter of fact, uh I think a lot of what we'll talk about today is that um uh Latinos and um and uh especially Mexican Americans certainly are a big part of um this movement. So it isn't Yes, white as normal, but not explicitly prescriptive in that way, or certainly not um, explicitly discriminatory or derogatory, right? And I I think we could talk about white Christian nationalism as a real thing, but I would say that is one form of Christian nationalism, often more centered in the South um, or the Midwest, often coming more out of a Southern Baptist Kind of sensibility, and there's complicated uh, Southern Baptist history with race. Yeah, um, John and I talked about that. There's a big divide between that because the racial component. I grew up in the West, and the racial component was non-existent in our 
in our communities. Um, so yeah, anyway, I just want to draw that distinction. So that, that's one form yeah. of Christian nationalism. You can also talk about um, Catholic Christian nationalism as a form of Christian nationalism, right? right? right. So what we're talking about in the series and, and um, in, in my forthcoming book is about a, a different form of Christian nationalism, what we could call the independent charismatic style of Christian nationalism. And the independent charismatic world is very multi-ethnic. And so often the people who are, are participating in these things are not white and are also often not, uh, the, the, the white people who are in those spaces are not in overtly racist in any way. In fact, they would say we are empowering people of color. Most of the, so Trump had different circles of advice, of evangelical advisors. Most of the evangelical, of, evangelical people of color in those circles were independent charismatics. Um, almost all of them, in fact. Um, and so the, the multi-ethnic Christianity that was in support of Donald Trump was largely coming out of this independent charismatic segment. One, one other just thought on um, how race intersects with this whole movement and this whole world. I, I, I think it's helpful to think of it as um, Christian nationalism and white supremacy as, as two circles in a Venn diagram that overlap. Okay. That's how but don't works. overlap perfectly. Right. So you have white supremacists or white nationalists who are not Christian. In fact, many of them are uh, trying to access different forms of Norwegian, right. Norse right. religion because they see that as more authentically white right. than the, the religion right. of Jesus, the right. first century Jewish serves, person. Serves the blood and soil better. Yeah. Um, and, and, but then there also are a lot of Christian nationalists who are not white. And so um, the Public Religion Research Institute did a, did a very interesting survey um, uh, just a few months ago, so early we just 2023. Talked about it yesterday. I was going to bring that up later, but yeah. And, and if you crunch the numbers yeah. in, in what they're looking at, um, these rates of what they categorize as Christian nationalism are slightly higher among white Christians, but not much. In fact, um, about two thirds of the um, people they identify as Christian nationalists are white and about a third are non-white, which is actually pretty close wow. to the population of the right. U S pretty right. close to the Christian distribution. So yeah, I, I, I don't, I avoid the terminology of white Christian nationalism, except to talk about the, a one segment piece of it. There's, right. there's one piece of it, but I think we need to think about this broader phenomenon and the way that it, it does change the, the, the understanding of Christian, which is how we get to Christian supremacy. So you prefer this term because it's more descriptive. It's more descriptive of the people that I'm looking okay. at. I, I would say that Christian supremacy is the, the the most hardened edge of Christian nationalism. I mean, if you, if you go and read the surveys that Pew or PRRI or um, other scholars and sociologists have done on Christian nationalism, and, and they'll show you that um, a lot of it is hazy and vague and sentimental, right? And it's, it's an attachment that people have to an America of yesteryear. It's, and, and so you'll ask people, well, do you think America should be a Christian nation? They'll say yes, right? I mean, and it's close to 50% of Americans will say yes to that question. Now, what they mean by that. Right. And, and, but then when you've asked follow-up questions and say, okay, so you think the Supreme Court should legislate based on biblical morality? Well, no. no. Right. Or, okay, so you think the federal government should declare the United States a Christian nation? No. Right. right? So, but there is a, a portion of that world. It's about 10 to 15% of the U.S. population that will continue saying yes to all those follow-up yes. questions, right? <laughs> and say, yes, we are a Christian nation. Yes, we should declare ourselves a Christian nation. Yes, the Supreme Court should legislate. And that part of the spectrum tends to be much more organized, have much more of a theological orientation to the stuff because it, it's built into their theological worldview 
that, that they've, they've built kind of a form of Christian nationalism. The other element of it, though, that, and this is part of why I, I, I try to avoid just simply using the terminology of Christian nationalism, is this stuff is not isolated to the United States. There, there are these transnational networks of Christian supremacy. And the, the movement that I'm looking at in particular has all of these international connections. So it's Africa, it's South America, it's um, the, the subcontinent, it's, it's um, Southeast Asia, and it's, it's Korea, it's Japan. I mean, so the, um, the, these, the way that we tend to think of Christian nationalism is about conscribed within the boundaries of America and being in some ways obsessed with those boundaries. But not everyone who is about turning America into a Christian nation is only about turning America. Some of them want to turn Hungary and Brazil and Russia and everywhere else into Christian nations. They, their, their mission is global takeover, not simply national takeover. God, there, there are about 18 different threads that I want to pull on right now, but I'm going to try and keep them focused here. Um, okay. <laughs> we use evangelical. Uh, as a real catch-all term. There's a lot of variability within that. Um, can you maybe outline Pentecostalism and these non-denominational uh, Christian groups? Like, they, they are separate from, what are the key parts of these groups as, uh, as separate from the institutions that, the, the establishment uh, that we've talked about, these, these groups are different. What else makes them different? Can you talk about them in terms of, um, Education. Can you talk about them in terms of other, other uh, characterizing features? So um, I think we, it helps. We, we talk about kind of mainstream versus fringe. I think or establishment versus fringe. I think that's a helpful way to categorize these things. And um, mainstream evangelicalism is denominational. So the National Association of Evangelicals that's founded in the 1940s is an association of denominations. So to belong to the national, the official umbrella organization of evangelicalism. You have to belong to these denominations. It's also, um, it, spiritually, there's a lot that is shared by evangelicals. Um, so all evangelicals like worship music and believe right. that worship is an important function. Jesus is my boyfriend music. Absolutely. But a lot of that music comes out of the independent, charismatic, and Pentecostal right. world. Um, and the... So mainstream evangelicalism is built around a set of institutions, um, parachurch organizations, seminaries, Bible colleges, Christian universities, um, kind of national ministries. Um, but the independent charismatic world yeah. that we're looking at is not built around institutions. It's built around personalities. Okay. This is, this is important. Yes. Yeah. And, and so part of what has happened is because there aren't these unifying institutions, right? It's, it's kind of the wild west of American Christianity, where um, there there are not there aren't sheriffs. There's nobody policing things. There's not denominations policing people's theology, and so you have all these autonomous churches. Sometimes they're banding together into networks, um, but they are not that those networks center around personalities. Especially since the 1980s, those personalities have tended to start calling themselves apostles. And saying we are those these latter day apostles meant to lead the church into revival, and we are going to unite. And then those those apostles start building out networks of churches that are all looking to them as their apostle. And some of these networks are are enormous; like you you almost can't conceptualize them in your brain. So one of the biggest ones is something called Harvest International Ministry, led by um, a a guy named Che On. 
who I, I talk about quite a bit in the series. And Harvest International Ministry has 25,000 ministries in 65 countries around the globe, all looking to Che on as their apostle. Right, so the, 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 the Southern Baptist denomination, the largest denomination in the United States, is about 45, 47,000 churches. So Harvest International Ministry is half the size of the Southern Baptist <laughs> denomination <laughs> and spread around the globe, and no one's ever heard of it right. outside of that world. Yeah. And yet that, the, the level of influence and impact that these networks can have is, yeah. is enormous. But it's built around this personality of Cheon rather than some governance model. Okay, so here's one really important uh, thing I need you to speak to, which is um, the, the role of an apostle. Um, Okay, we tend to think if you have if you have even a cursory understanding of the difference between Catholicism and and Protestantism, you know that there is no intermediary between you and God, right? You have a personal relationship with uh, with the divine. Does Cheon as an apostle function as an intermediary between God and the people who he's following are following him, or how how do they conceptualize his relationship with God versus theirs? What authority does he have? So I've interviewed Cheon, and um, he is Protestant enough that he would balk at the idea of, of being any sort of an of intermediary. Um, but functionally, in some ways, he is, um, or at least he. The, the terminology they would use is that Cheon gives his network an apostolic covering, right? So they can all look to him as the apostle. But he's just one apostle. So okay. sometimes people want to use cult terminology. So to like try a pastor, but he's so, well, so for people who might be familiar with like an evangelical pastor, how how does he function differently from that role? So the idea in this world is um, that there are five ministry gifts, and they get this out of uh, Ephesians chapter four in the Bible. Um, and so those those gifts, and they they would say these are gifts given by Jesus to the church, are apostles, prophets, evangelists, teachers, and pastors. And sometimes they'll use even a military analogy um, to explain this. And they would say, well, the pastors are like the chefs or the cooks in the military, and they're like the, the medics, right? The pastors are there to keep everyone healthy, keep everyone happy, make sure they're, they're all feeling okay. And then they would say, the evangelists are the recruiters who are going out and getting new people for the army. The teachers are the drill sergeants who are training people in how to serve in the military. But then you come to the apostles and prophets. And, and this is, again, most, most Christians, most evangelicals don't believe in modern-day apostles and prophets. Right. That was never part of really my vernacular. It was never part of our lexicon. So It's yeah. really emerged, especially since the 1990s. It has become this, this huge part of the, this charismatic world. Um, but they would say the prophets are the spies because they can hear directly from God. They gain intelligence from God and then give military plans. And they would say the apostles are the generals who, and they'll, they'll even critique the pastoral impulse and say, if, if, if all you had were pastors, nobody would ever go to war. Mm. But the apostles know how to lead people into war. And they are willing to sacrifice some of, some of people's comfort and even maybe some of their lives for the sake of winning the war. And so the, in their world, apostles give vision. Apostles are these entrepreneurial starters who are always beginning new things. And apostles carry an enormous amount of spiritual authority, both in the, in the physical world, 
in terms of the, the people that they oversee and the ministries they oversee, but also in the spiritual world. And so apostles can, and they would use this terminology, give apostolic declarations that change physical reality. Because they, they look at the Bible and they say, that's what the apostles did in the Bible. They could declare things and God would back them up. They can write checks that God's going to cash. And so in this world, like Cheon is seen as a miraculous figure. He's not the only one. There are other apostles, right? And, and sometimes the people in his network will look to those other apostles. But the apostles are seen as carrying this miraculous authority. Okay. This is really important groundwork. What is the new apostolic reformation? So the, the new apostolic reformation is um, a phrase that was coined in the 1990s. Uh, it was um, uh, the, the primary proponent of this phrase is a guy named C. Peter Wagner. Wagner um, was this uh, seminary professor. I, I went to Fuller Theological Seminary. Wagner was a, a professor at Fuller for about uh, 30 years, uh, from around 1970 to around 1999. Um, and so he's this renegade seminary professor, very um, avant-garde, very controversial, uh, very popular. Um, and I didn't overlap with him at all at Fuller, but I, I kind of caught the edges of his influence and his ideas because he'd already retired by the time I started. But um, he was, so he was, he's a visionary in many ways. He was a theorist. So he'd gotten his PhD in um, social ethics at the University of Southern California. And he was very attached to this idea at the time was called church growth, taking right. the data of social sciences applying it to Christian evangelical theology and helping churches to grow. So it's kind of a data-driven church growth. And if you're thinking, ah, whatever, that sounds kind of obscure. Okay. Rick Warren, the author of <laughs> Purpose Driven uh, Life. The Purpose Driven Life, he he did his doctorate in ministry at Fuller under Peter Wagner. And his dissertation in church growth under Wagner became part of the foundation for the purpose driven life. So wow. These ideas were very, very popular yeah. among evangelicals in the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s. Yeah. And Wagner was one of the leading theorists of this. And over time, he came to believe that these independent charismatics were the leading edge of the church. That that was, because again, he is obsessed with church growth. He thinks that is where the revival is going to come. That is how the 21st century church is going to be rebuilt and renewed. And over time, he really adopts these ideas of apostles and prophets. And so in the, in the middle of the 1990s, he's still a professor at Fuller, but he gathers a group of people and starts talking about the new apostolic reformation. And he thought it would be... This uh, is a, a phrase he, he coined. Well, it's funny because he actually didn't coin it. Okay. Um, it's, a, it's a funny story. So his, his phrase that he was really going for at the time was the post-denominational church. Ah, Okay. Again, this idea of we're moving right. past denominations, and he's right. still this, he still had these ideas of apostles and prophets in the mix and everything. But it was it, he he thought we're he had this theory of the post-denominational church, and he gathered a big symposium on the post-denominational church in Pasadena, sponsored by Fuller Seminary, five hundred leaders coming to Pasadena in nineteen ninety six, May of nineteen ninety six, um, and the first day of the symposium, he um, and a group of the leaders from the symposium actually go and have lunch with Jack Hayford, and Jack <laughs> Hayford is a major leader in the Foursquare that wow, yes. I mentioned just passed away recently. Haven't heard um, that name in a long time. And also a major church figure in Los Angeles. Yeah. And um, so on the eve of this big symposium, they go and have lunch with Jack Hayford. Church on the Way? Yeah, right? Church on the Way was, right. his, was his main church out in, in the valley there. And um, so they're having lunch with Jack Hayford. The first thing that Jack says when he sees Peter, he says, oh, Peter, I'm so grieved to see you. And Peter Wagner's very taken aback. And he says, well, what did I, what did I do? 
And Jack Hayford says this, this language of post-denominational, you're, you're making me into a dinosaur. I want to do, I want to be a part of what you're talking about, but I'm a denominational leader. And so Peter's like, let's change the name. And they, they're having lunch and they start throwing around different names. Somebody in the group throws out new apostolic reformation. They grab hold of it. And then it goes. So it was not Peter Wagner's idea, Wow! but then he becomes the champion okay. of this phrase. Okay. And it's meant to signal that it, we are, he, and, and this was Wagner's theory was that the beginning of the 21st century, we would enter a second apostolic era. The first apostolic era is the early church. We are entering a second apostolic era, and it will change the way of doing church on the level of what the Protestant Reformation did. The early church, like a couple thousand years ago. Yes, right? that's the first century church, right. where, where there were apostles and right. prophets. And now we're going to have new apostles and prophets who will lead the church into the global revival, the third great awakening, and the whole world will be transformed. We're reclaiming this idea of apostles and prophets, and we're going to yep. modernize it. And well, again, that was not Wagner's original idea. A lot of people were talking about it, but he mm -hmm. coins the, or he takes the phrase, mm -hmm. and then he winds up building infrastructure for this thing, uniting a bunch of these kind of disparate apostles, turning them into a movement, turning them into a series, a set of institutions and organizations and a mentoring circle. And then I argue in the series that, that those mentoring circles were the core of Christian Trumpism. Mm. And then they were also the instigating force behind Christians being there on January 6th. <sighs> okay. January 6th. God, there's so I could talk to you for hours and hours. <laughs> um, okay. Um, we've talked about the weight and power apostles and prophets can have. Um, explain the seven mountain mandate and how it's shaped the way, we'll say NAR, New Apostolic Reformation, for people following along, that's what we mean by NAR. Um, how it's shaped the way the NAR groups, which you've just described, uh, engage in politics. The Seven Mountains idea, what is it and where does it come from? So it, it has deep roots in um, Protestant Christianity. A lot of it goes back into Calvinism. Um, but the idea of the seven mountains is that you, society has different spheres or different areas of influence. Um, and there's different models of, of thinking about that in Calvinism. But in the 1970s, there's a couple of evangelical leaders, Bill Bright, who founded Campus Crusade for Christ, yep. and Lauren Cunningham, who founded Youth with a Mission. Yep. YWAM. YWAM, yeah, that's what, what people usually call it. And um, they, they are meeting for dinner, and they claim that they both have a dream the night before they meet for dinner. And God reveals to them seven areas of cultural influence that the church needs to, to work on. And the church, the, the basic idea is the church needs to not only operate in the church or the religion sphere or only operate in the home sphere, but the church needs to go out into society. The church needs to influence media. The church needs to influence government. The church needs to influence education. The church needs to influence business, right? And that, that if you can combine uh, the, the, if you can unify forces, there can be a grassroots transformation. Yeah. So in this, this idea is kind of percolating around. This happens in 1975 that they, they claim that they have these dreams. In 2000, um, there's a young charismatic pastor named Lance Wall now who meets Lauren Cunningham, who by this point is kind of an elder statesman type person in the charismatic world. And Wall now hears about this vision, this, this dream yep. that Cunningham had. And he's kind of, you know, he's, he's in a, in a space where he, he's looking for his big thing. Wall now really wants to have a signature idea and a legacy, a legacy. And he grabs <laughs> hold of this seven spheres idea 
And he'd also, at the time, just heard a story about somebody's near-death experience. And he, uh, and the, in the vision this guy has as a near-death experience, and Walnut didn't hear it directly from here. He's like getting this like third hand, <laughs> but the near-death experience, the guy is, is on, on his deathbed and he sees seven mountains rising out of the ocean. And God tells him, those are the seven kingdoms of this world. And you're called to the government mountain. Interestingly, what Walnut tells the story later, he, he actually admits that the person he heard it from doesn't remember telling him the story. <laughs> and when he tries to go find any of the information, he can't verify it. But he just keeps talking about it. And he blends, so he blends together the Cunningham and Bright seven spheres idea with this imagery of mountains rising out of the sea. And he gives birth to what I call a prophetic meme of the seven mountains. And so the idea is he takes those seven cultural spheres and says, well, each of those is actually a mountain. And the top of the mountain is where influence comes from. It flows from the top down. And the top of the mountain is either controlled by Satan or by the kingdom of God. And if we can just get Christians and people of, of powerful influence who are aligned with our Christian interests at the top of every one of the mountains, then we can transform societies. And so where I think Cunningham and Bright had this idea of a sort of grassroots transformation, more, more Christians should go into media. Walnow has this idea of taking over and then governing from the top and doing battle with Satan to conquer the seven mountains and then, and then bringing that into uh, the reality of, of the world. And so um, about a year after this, uh, Walnow meets C. Peter Wagner. And Wagner loves this idea. He becomes very attached to the seven mountains idea. Wagner has been building these networks of apostles and prophets. And so he brings Walnow into his inner circle, really adopts this idea. In fact, at some point it becomes very hard to tell which of the seven mountains ideas are Wagner's and what are Walnow's because they're really working together on these things. And then they spread these ideas everywhere. I mean, they, they have hundreds of people in their leadership networks by that point. And these are people sometimes overseeing multiple churches in the, these independent charismatic non-denominational churches. And they just spread these ideas all over the place. They write books about the seven mountains. They give lectures, they give presentations. And starting around 2007, 2008, this stuff just goes everywhere in the very, independent Christian Very, very sticky meme. And in fact, it's, and, and, then, and then once, this becomes one of the key rationales for Christians supporting Trump, because they say, and Walnow is a very much a proponent of this, one of the first Christians to endorse Donald Trump, one of the first Christian leaders to really advocate for Donald Trump as maybe the most effective Christian propagandist for Donald Trump. But he says, Donald Trump has proven his success in the media mountain. He's proven his success in the business mountain. So why don't we leverage him to take over the government mountain for us? And, and so it becomes this theology that vindicates a sort of realpolitik that says Donald Trump is strong, he's a conqueror, and we can get behind him and let him conquer the government mountain for us. Thanks for listening to part one. In part two, Matt and I discuss the theological basis for Trump, a non-Christian, being chosen by God to be president, the belief that political leaders are appointed by God, something called strategic spiritual warfare at the Capitol on January 6th. We talk about the discourse of violence in charismatic Christianity leading to January 6th. We talk about the lack of understanding of charismatic Christians in American media. We talk about being precise about the threats to pluralism presented by part of charismatic Christianity. 
And finally, we discuss what he's seeing in the subculture as we head toward the 2024 election and what you can do to bring some health to these discussions. Our amazing team spent dozens of hours bringing this episode to you. So if you wouldn't mind taking just a few seconds to leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, that would help us a lot, would help other people find it, and we'd be grateful. And if you'd like to share more of your thoughts on this episode, I'd love to read them. Feel free to drop me a line at podcast at politicology.com.